Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. So welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Dr. Alex Lanferner, and I am a climate justice campaigner with the nonprofit 350africa.org as well as the Secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. And today we're very excited to be talking about transforming ESCOM. And I'm very excited to have with us Mandy Rumbras, who's head of the Just Energy Transition Office. As the Climate Justice Coalition, we have a campaign around a green new ESCOM. And Mandy is probably one of the most crucial people in ensuring that we transform ESCOM. So it's really exciting to have you with us, Mandy, thank you for being here. By way of a little bit of uh, introduction, um, and Mandy does a lot, so it's a good uh, bio that we've got here. So Mandy is a general manager at ESCOM, where she's heading up the Just Energy Transition Office, where she sort of develops and accelerates the utilities vision of a just energy transition. Um, and she has over 20 years experience in the energy sector. She's a member of the South African delegation to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. She also serves on the boards of South Africa's National Business Initiative, VERA, as well as the Global Change Institute at the University of Wiesbaden, Johannesburg. So Mandy also represents ESCOM on the World Bank's Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition Advisory Committee and serves as the co-chair of the African Working Group for this initiative. And last but not least, Mandy was recently appointed to the, as a commissioner on the Presidential Commission on Climate Change here in South Africa. So thank you so much, Mandy. That's a, it's a rather uh, impressive bio you've got there. So I thought I'd start by asking you a question um, to maybe bring a bit more of a human element because there's a lot that you're doing there. So what motivates or inspires you to do this work? And I imagine there's a lot of frustrations too that come with some of that. So how do you decompress after all this work as maybe just the icebreaker here? How do I decompress? Am I allowed to say that in public? <laughs> <laughs> Up to you. I'm not sure what ESCOM's uh, PR guidelines are on this one. <laughs> um, actually, quite interestingly enough, I love uh, music, complex music, so classical music, and just literally going outside, getting some fresh air, walking around and listening to some Beethoven hmm. actually does decompress me. Of course, a glass of wine also helps, but, <laughs> but I really, you know, just being outdoors and listening to music is, is a great um, um, a relaxation for me, to be honest. <laughs> Wonderful. I imagine, uh, yeah, after long days of complex ESCOM, it, it must be important to get that in. And so what, what motivates or inspires you to, to do this work, seeing as you're doing so much around climate change and energy issues? Well, I mean, I mean you know, for me, um, I might sound very nerdy right now, but one of my go-to books is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in there, he talks about living purposefully. Mm. And so for me, this whole thing about transition, about a, a better future for all of us, uh, Alex, as you know, I've been involved in climate change for many, many years, mm -hmm. is because it's actually a passion for me, and I'm fortunate enough to have a job that meets my passion. So living purposefully and living with that passion is what motivates me, is what gets me going. I know everyone says, oh, you work for ESCOM, the biggest emitter. So where else? Where is it better to make a change than where the biggest problem lies? So for me, it's a passion. That's what gets me going every day. That's fantastic. I think even though we're on different sides of this, uh, uh, it's a similar sort of passion is being able to, to get up every day and work on trying to make the world a better place. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit more into the, the details of what exactly a just energy transition is. I mean, relatedly, what does your just energy transition office do? Um, I don't know if the, the just energy transition or the just transition is not a common term, at least in the public uh, space. And often also when it is used, it's, it's got a lot of vagaries around it. So I wonder if you could dive in a little yeah. bit there. Sure. So, I mean, you know, the way we look at it, if you look at the, the history and the context of where the just transition comes from, uh, it came from labor organizations a very long time ago uh, when the world, mostly Europe, was transitioning its energy landscape away from coal towards cleaner, greener fuels. And that's coming to our shores now. It has been for a while. 
And the way we look at the transition is transitioning from where we are currently as ESCOM from a, a coal-dominated utility towards lower carbon technologies. But that's the transition part, right? Mm. The just part is that the transition is inclusive. It's an inclusive future that places people at the center. And for me, that encapsulates the just transition, that yes, we need to transition towards a cleaner, greener future, but you can't do it unless it's just. And that means taking care of the socioeconomic development, ensuring that we have sustainable electricity supply and meeting the needs of people. You know, a lot of people in our country um, grew the economy through dedicating their lives to a coal industry. And so we know better now. And so we want to do better in moving away from coal, but you can't forget about those people. So the just part of the just transition is crucial for us. Thank you. That's uh, that's a really good overview. And yeah, the idea that we don't just leave behind those that have dedicated their selves to their to our energy systems is really important. And within that space, so your your office as the Just Energy Transition Office, what is your mandate, broadly speaking, to to make the Just Energy Transition happen? So the mandate of of the office within ESCOM is to oversee ESCOM's transition towards a lower carbon future uh, that is inclusive. So I, uh, you know, my role is to develop the strategy for ESCOM, the Just Energy Transition Strategy, and to implement and roll that out within the company uh, with our team, with the help of my colleagues as well. And I think what's very important to note is that the Just Energy Transition Office is, is in the office of the Chief Executive, which means that he takes personal accountability and it's at the highest level. And that this just energy transition is seen as as pivotal to ESCOM's future. Um, and so the mandate is to say, how do we take ESCOM into this future of a cleaner, greener future, sustainable electricity supply, but doing it in a manner that respects our socioeconomic development? Thanks. And can you tell me a little bit about the, the nuts and bolts of who's involved in creating the just transition vision, who you're working with to, to make that happen in terms of maybe the stakeholders that help you to create that vision around a just energy transition for ESCOM? So when we looked at uh, our vision, so we've got this 2050 vision, which you would have seen in the public domain, where we talk about getting to net zero emissions by 2050 with an increase in sustainable jobs was something that we um, looked at internally. We did obviously look at what uh, what were the, the trends going on internationally, what were the trends going on in other utilities, in, in, in leading best practice around the world. And we looked at how do we then bring that back to ESCOM? You know, we don't, as you know, we don't have competition in the country. So you can't compare to yourself to another utility in the country. In fact, no other business in the country has come out of the 2050 vision. It's, it's just ESCOM. And so we look at, you know, what are the trends happening in, in Europe? Where do we see funders or investors uh, looking to? Um, and, and that is how we came up with the vision. But uh, unlike most countries and companies around the world who, who put a full stop after the net zero emissions, we said with an increase in sustainable jobs, due to the our national circumstances around, uh, you know, having such a high unemployment rate, ensuring that we're not going to contribute to job losses, but actually contribute to employment. So that was developed through looking at um, international organizations. And as you saw, uh, you know, we are involved in quite a number of leading world um, organizations that look at sustainable development trends, that look at climate change trends. And it helps a lot being involved in the climate change negotiations as well to understand where the global landscape is going. But then coming back home, you know, we, we did have a number of stakeholder engagements, including with yourselves as Climate Justice Coalition, to try and understand where stakeholders are thinking, where the concerns were. So, you know, we've been talking to other business organizations locally, uh, the, the National Business Initiative, for example, BUSA, Minerals Council, um, you know, various players in the field to try and understand where concerns were. And that's helped us also shape our own strategy and our own thinking. Uh, but I must say, we do look a lot at international trends, but making sure we're taking into account the national concerns. And of course, that includes a lot of engagement with government as well. As a 100% state-owned company, you can imagine, you know, we have a number of engagements with, with government and understanding the, the landscape from that national perspective as well. 
As you're developing this vision, I'm interested in understanding maybe some of the opportunities that some of the major opportunities you see in the transition, but also what are some of the biggest obstacles that you're facing to make this happen? So maybe let's talk a little bit about obstacles first. Mm. I think it's absolute no brainer that we have financial challenges, right? Financial mm. constraints as a company, mm. but also as a country with our economy not growing uh, with uh, there being so much pressure on us as a country and as an economy to grow jobs and not to contribute to job losses. I think financing is a huge uh, constraint, but it's not insurmountable. It's not an insurmountable constraint. It's something that you uh, we have been talking to a lot of funders about. And so I'll when I'll uh, come to the opportunities, I'll talk more on that. Uh, there's also regulatory constraints, I think, because, you know, we've been a monopoly um, for so long. Energy policy in the country is has been set for, for a number of years and has not kept up with the changes um, in the global landscape. So there are some challenges to overcome there. I don't think insurmountable again. But what's important, I think, uh, and what I found as a challenge is that we don't have a, a common vision as a country in terms of what the just transition is, how energy policy should unfold, how environmental policy should unfold, you know, um, industrialization policy, I think all of those things coming together is currently a challenge. And how do we bring those together in a coherent way that, uh, you know, pulls in the same direction? And I think if we had a common vision as a country from a just transition perspective, it'll be a lot easier to get over that regulatory challenge. But I think I think the biggest challenge, both internally for us is ESCOM, but also externally in dealing with the number of constituencies that we need to deal with is a mindset change. Mm. Um, you know, when you talk about transitioning and people talk about, oh, you're going to be moving from coal to renewables, and that's quite a big change. The technological change is not the biggest challenge. It's been done. The engineering has mm. been done. You know, you, there's no challenge there that cannot be overcome from a technical perspective. The biggest challenge is the mindset change, is that we're actually transitioning from the way we used to do business to transformational business models, to transformational technologies, to you have to think differently about the energy system. You have to think differently about how we produce electricity. And I think dealing with that, you know, you you, you saying to people, we're going to be shutting down coal plant and replacing coal plant with renewables. And then there's this immediate challenge around, yes, but the coal mining industry employs so many people. You won't be able to do the same with renewables. And there isn't this mindset that things, how do we think about this along the value chain? How do we think bigger around this? And so I think change management, which is definitely not a skill I have, and you know, working internally with our HR colleagues, change management is something we need not just for our internal mindsets, but I think at a national level in terms of how we create these jobs and do this coherently along that supply chain is where the biggest challenge lies. And then the second part of your question around opportunities, you know, we've done some numbers linked to the integrated resource plan. If we are to implement the integrated resource plan, build all of those renewables that are in there. Which is the electricity plan for the, the country, the integrated resource plan. Yes, the plan. integrated resource plan, the electricity plan for the country. If you build all the renewables that the plan is advocating for, the job opportunities linked to local manufacturing is staggering. If you look at the transmission development plan that ESCOM put out about a month ago, it's it's in the public domain, where we talk about what, how much transmission infrastructure is actually needed to implement the integrated resource plan. It's about 8,000 kilometers of lines over the next 10 years. And what we've done there also is an assessment of supplier capability and capacity in the country. So simple things like steel, aluminium, copper. Are we able to supply that in the country? And you can either be positive about it and say, and be, you know, like, this is so daunting. We don't have the capacity in the country to do that. Or you can look at the opportunity and say, here's an opportunity for us to invite investment into the country, grow local manufacture, grow supplier capability, commit to this renewables plan, commit to this lower carbon future and this transmission plan, and then grow that supply chain. So I think therein lies opportunity. There's also great career opportunities for young people entering the, the workplace, entering university on what to study. In. And, um, you know, I think there's so much opportunity there to encourage young people in newer career paths. You don't need to think about the traditional career paths. Uh, you know, some of us may have studied when we entered the uh, varsity and, and the work field. 
there's just so much opportunity there along the uh, along that uh, supply chain as well. Thanks for that. I think that uh, that positive vision of the opportunities that are there, where you know the transition is actually one of the greatest opportunities for job creation. I think that South Africa has, if we embrace it in the ways that ensures local manufacturing, that ensures that we're really driving this process rather than resisting it. But I think that resistance is really a big part of the the political economy when we tell that story. Right? Is yeah. that folks yeah. maybe either don't believe in that story of change or they're actively trying to push back against that because they have vested interests in not allowing us to make that shift. And one of the the elements that you mentioned there, of course, is the the integrated resource plan, which is developed by the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy. I mean, there's lots of people in civil society that worry about it because it constrains renewable energy rather than unleashing it. Um, in the ways that we could as South Africa, if we really wanted to embrace renewable energy. And so I'm just wondering, in terms of ESCOM, you know, obviously the relationship between the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy and yourself is going to be a complex one because they regulate you, they constrain how much energy you can put in place. So wh- what is that relationship like and how does that put brakes maybe on some of the ambitions that you'd like to see happening within ESCOM? So I think, you know, as you rightly say, we are regulated by the DMRE in terms of energy policy. Uh, There's obviously also um, our shareholder department, which is the uh, Department of Public Enterprises. Mm. So it's around, uh, when I say that ESCOM is heavily regulated, we are heavily regulated. A lot of people don't understand it and think, you know, we can be maverick and do what we like, but we, we can't actually. So what we've done, particularly on the just energy transition, is we've we've deliberately had a number of engagements with the DMRE, and we continue to do that. So we've set up uh, regular uh, meetings with them. Uh, we also, uh, you know, collaborate and work with the DMRE through the ESCOM political task team and technical task teams, where the the officials from DMRE have been quite supportive of the just transition plan. Um, and I think the the if the, the tension comes around the timing and the phasing of the transition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, because we have minerals and energy in the same portfolio, it's difficult to talk about uh, shutting down coal plants, coal mines, mm-hmm. and let's look at an energy future within the same department. So I think that's the tension they need to manage is right. uh, putting together a just transition framework from a minerals energy complex that takes care of both sides of it. Uh, but I must say, you know, in our discussions with the DMRE in the last few months have been uh, very collegial, very collaborative in terms of how do we um, support the Just Transition Plan. I think the concern is about the creation of jobs. Mm. Um, and it comes back to what I was saying around coalescing around, let's look at opportunity from renewables. There's some work that we need to do as a country um, and, and I think it needs to be broader than just ESCOM and the DMRE and include others in terms of realistically, how many jobs can we create through local manufacture, through supply? Mm. And then it circles back to the DMRE to say, then we need certainty around policy that we will be building all these renewables. Right. We will be committing to this lower carbon future so that you can then give certainty to the investors to say, yes, invest in South Africa. But I think, you know, yes, there's there's obviously tensions around what we might want to do, how we might be bullish around renewables as ESCOM in terms of the DMRE trying to understand uh, the replacement of our capacity as we shut down coal plant and what our plans are to replace that. So there is that tension, especially because, you know, shutting down units at Komati Power Station, for example, you won't be replacing it one to one with renewables, megawatt for megawatt. And so there is a capacity gap, and that capacity gap needs to be filled in the country, and and that's where the DMRE plays a role. So there will always be that tension, but I think the relationship in the last few months around collaborating around a just transition has been good. And I think what's also good is the Presidential Commission on Climate Change, where there's a lot of commitment from many ministers um, that have dedicated time and effort in those discussions. So I think from that perspective, there's a lot of positivity, but they obviously, I don't want to uh, paint a, a picture that's completely rosy and say mm. there aren't obstacles. There are obstacles. There are regulatory barriers that we need to overcome. But I think, you know, in, in, in more conversations, in working collaboratively, we can 
overcome them. Like I was saying earlier, they're not insurmountable. It's about having the conversations. Mm. Um, you know, like we are having a conversation now. Um, and, you know, we just, uh, we were talking about this just earlier in a, in a meeting that actually this online platform, this online way of doing meetings has not done us a lot of favors in terms of working together. Mm. Completely understand we have to do them with, you know, with all of the stuff going on with the pandemic. But I think every now and then when we actually sit around the table with people and you talk about where our differences lie, you realize actually it's a simple problem to resolve. It might be an awareness thing. It might be a misunderstanding. And I think we just need to do more of those in terms of overcoming some of the uh, ch challenges or differences of opinion we have around energy policy. Mm. So thanks for that. I think it's it's really interesting to think about the differences between yourself and the DMRE. And I think one thing that people perhaps don't recognize enough is just how much the DMRE controls energy policy. And so that, you know, often the blame for load shedding is put on ESCOM shoulders in the public discourse. But really, the DMRE has not been allowing new re renewable energy for quite a long time now. And so it has been putting those constraints in. Um, I think we as the Climate Justice Coalition maybe have a little bit more of a, a less rosy vision of the DMRE in terms of seeing them being a pretty major obstacle to change. Um, I think it's both the mindset question that you were talking about earlier, but I think there's a political economy element where the DMRE is still very vested and there are big questions of corruption and ties to um, you know really problematic polluting interests that are slowing the transition. So I think that's part of what's informing our approach to the DMRE and the need to put a lot of pressure on them in civil society. Um, and even towards the end of this year in September, we're building towards a big mobilization around the DMRE. So hopefully that will make your job a little bit easier if we can push the DMRE to, to make some changes. But maybe let's uh, switch a little bit to thinking about some of the positives of ESCOM's vision that, that we like. You know, so there's, I think, when we think about the relationship between the Climate Justice Coalition and ESCOM with our Green New ESCOM campaign, there are things that we are celebrating about what ESCOM is trying to do. We see some positive elements. Uh, of course, we don't agree on everything. So we also want to bring out some of the, the areas where we have some concern here, if that's okay. Um, but well, I thought I'd start with some of the positive elements. And one of the things that you're doing is the repurposing and repowering of old power plants, um, old coal plants that are going to be retired and potentially doing that with renewable energy. And so we know that ESCOM put out a request for proposals on that uh, last year. So how is that process coming along? What's that looking like? Uh, we put out a proposal or we put out a request for information to the market to try and understand uh, what the market thinking was around how do we repower and repurpose our power plants. Uh, I must say, you know, in, the, in doing the work in the last few months, we've uh, focus is very much on repowering uh, because we want to get capacity on the ground and get electricity, get electrons out there. Uh, repurposing obviously is still important, uh, but if we have limited finances, limited people, we're focusing on the repowering. So where we are at the moment is we've got a lot of responses from market, a lot of positive responses. We've evaluated, we've done the technical evaluations around them. What we're busy now with is some due diligence studies uh, that's going to be actually starting uh, next week. We have a kickoff meeting with the consultant that's been appointed uh, to do the technical studies at site. So the engineering studies to tell us uh, if we are going PV battery storage at Komati, for example, how much PV can you technically do? What, how much battery storage can we do? Uh, you know, uh, information around the grid tie-ins, transmission infrastructure requirements, which of the plant we can still use, you know, what we would need to, uh, where we would need to start afresh, and then also environmental and social studies. So those are kicking off next week. Once those studies are finished and we have a, a better scope and understanding of scope of size of plant capacity and all of that, we're going to go out on RFP to then repower the site. So that's uh, positive. Um, the studies are for Komati, Henry Nachritfle and Camden, the power stations that are shutting down immediately. But we've asked uh, that the studies, you know, that we accelerate the work around Komati because uh, Komati has one unit running, which will be shut down in October next year. So we're very, very keen to get something on, uh, you know, get work up and running and repowering done at Komati. So that's where we are on that process. Thanks. That's uh, that's good to know. And I think that's really a big part of this just transition is that repowering in place means that you're creating jobs in the same place where workers mm -hmm. were. 
Um, so I think that's a, that's a really important element there and glad to see ESCOM making some headway there. Um, I know one of the other exciting elements is that ESCOM's also been trying to invest in microgrids for communities, renewable microgrids, which gives energy access to those that are perhaps a bit further away from the centralized grid. And are you pushing forward more projects on that front? I know there was one in the Free State that you did a while back. Yeah, um, interesting that you asked the question. We have a, a pilot site at uh, Fixburg in the Free State. Mm. And, you know, it was it is a pilot site because we wanted to learn from there and how to bring down the costs of doing microgrids. That plant is completely controlled from our research facility in Rushville in Germiston. And it's a plant that operates really well, does really mm. well. We had community buy-in. Um, you know, in the past, in our country, we've had problems around solar panels and, and uh, components being stolen. And mm. having community buy-in means that you do some social development. Uh, the community um, sees the plant as theirs, and so there's a lot of protection around the plant itself. That's beside the point, though. So mm. uh, the reason I'm saying it's interesting that you asked the question is we've developed a containerized solution as well. Uh, we actually have uh, one uh, up and running at our site at Rushville in Germiston. Mm. You're more than welcome to come and visit it sometime. And it's literally a container with solar panels down the side and the battery packs inside the container. And then you can, you can uh, the way our guys have engineered it is that you can put the panels inside the container, transport it to wherever you need to, and then set it up for that community. Mm. So it's a, it's a solution, a containerized solution contain, <laughs> excuse right. the pun, contain in, in, a, in a single uh, container. And so we're looking, you know, that the engineering work has been done. It's mm. it's fully um, mobile in terms of you can pick it up and place it anywhere. And if you think about it this way, if you pick it up and place it in a, in a deep rural community that needs electrification, and in a few years, say in five to six years, that community becomes electrified through the grid, you can then move the container somewhere else. Or if the community wants to keep that container, they keep it. So that just needs commercialization. We just need money to get that commercialized and we can roll it out. Uh, we had a visit from uh, a funder yesterday at our Rushable site. We were with them all day on site. Or was it the day before yesterday? The day before yesterday um, to show them these containerized solutions. And, and they were very excited about getting that commercialized and funding it. So, and, and I'm talking not, you know, all of these other plants I'm talking about in terms of repowering will cost us quite a packet. Mm. This is uh, money that, uh, you know, these are solutions that could be funded through CSI budgets. So we're very, very keen to get microgrid solutions out there and link them to electrification areas. But like I said, it's a containerized solution. You can actually do it anywhere. Right. So very exciting opportunity there. And an opportunity there also for industrialization, for industrialists to come mm. in, um, and, you know, to, to get that going as a business. So I think that's a great opportunity. Hmm. That's exciting. And, and good to see the, the innovations that ESCOM are, are trying to put in place to, to bring energy access to folks there. Some of the other positives that we're seeing are things like investing in storage and smart grids, large-scale renewable energy. And these, these come from the plans that you, you shared with us, Mandy. Um, there's others about measures to ensure the local manufacture of renewable energy, to enable small-scale and embedded renewable energy too, so to allow businesses and homes to hopefully be um, bringing solar into the grid. And then there's the other one around exploring green hydrogen, um, which is using renewable energy to produce hydrogen. Um, I don't know if there's any of those that you're particularly excited about that you wanted to, to speak to. There's a lot there, obviously. I think I'm excited about all of them. So, mm. <laughs> you know, for me, you know, because our vision is 2050 and, and it's a long time to think about, I mean, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. What we've done is we've taken that strategy and broken it down into the five-year tranches. So for the next five years, you know, our focus is getting repowering, uh, repowering done with mm. commercially available technology. So we know that PV and battery storage works. We know mm. that wind works. We know that it's the lowest cost electricity options at the moment, and, and you can do it in short spaces of time, right? So we need capacity on the ground because we're shutting down plants, because we have capacity shortages. Let's do it. Let's not try and um, be technology developers. So we're not trying to do technology development. We're saying, take what's, off, what's available, let's plug and play and, and get it done. And I think so we'll, so that's our focus uh, very in the short term, in the next five years. But of course, we love innovation. So we're keeping our eye on the hydrogen ball, if I could put it that way. 
um, to say, you know, when when hydrogen is available, and, and we've had some discussions with uh, original equipment manufacturers, and their view is for electricity production and storage, we're probably thinking uh, 2030, so it's still 10 years away. Um, so we are not going to be putting our focus and our energy, excuse the pun, on that right now, but mm. keeping our eye on it. But for now, our focus and our energy is let's just get what we know works on the ground. Right. You know, get this renewables industry up and running and, and push it forward in South Africa. Yeah, that makes sense, using proven technologies, which makes me think about Minister Mantasha and his claims that we're going to have clean coal and carbon capture and storage, which are not very well-proven technologies and expensive and potentially polluting. So I'm glad that you're focusing in on the renewables that we know work, that are effective, that are, are cheap and quick to, to roll out in terms of uh, solving load shedding. So I'm really glad that we were able to, to focus on some of the, the really positive elements that, that ESCOM is moving forward. And certainly your office is, uh, is moving ESCOM forward a lot from where it used to be on um, issues of transition. Um, but I also wanted to chat about some of the concerns that folks in the coalition and more broadly have raised when it comes to, to moving the just energy transition forward. And we as the coalition, we work a lot with trade unions as well as community-based organizations. And I think there's a big worry that as ESCOM moves forward, that there's going to be a big push towards privatization in the renewable energy sector. And I think, you know, particularly for unions where, you know, public sector jobs are a big part of, of their work, there's, there's a worry there that that privatization will make electricity more expensive, that it will lead to job losses. Um, and so I'm just wondering, what do you, what's your response to the worries that ESCOM might be driving a sort of a privatized version of the energy future? So, so I think to be very uh, clear that in our drive in the just energy transition is not a euphemism for privatization at all. Mm. We see ESCOM uh, remaining uh, very much publicly owned. We know we're going through an unbundling phase right now where mm. transmission will be uh, legally separated by the end of the year. But we do see the role still for a state-owned company in terms of um, participation in renewables um, and also because of that social mandate so it's when we talk about the just energy transition and we talk about ESCOM's renewables plans, it's about ESCOM being involved in renewables as well. Mm. There might be partnership opportunities, you know, to partner with the private sector, because quite frankly, they can bring in the financing that we need. But the idea is not to privatize uh, renewables, but to ensure that ESCOM plays a role in renewables as well for especially that social development angle. Um, I think it's important, and that is why when, when we talk about renewables and when we talk about a net zero vision, we're not just talking about decarbonization, we're talking about local manufacture, social development, job creation, is because we cannot see that you can do renewables in the country without ensuring that you uh, are protecting jobs and that you're creating the opportunities for local manufacture. So I understand the, the concerns, you know, they valid concerns around uh, are we then uh, just exporting all of our uh, money through pri the private sector and through uh, OEMs that might come in, um, international companies that might come in. And, and uh, you know, it's important that we make sure that when we roll out renewables in the country, that we ensure that there is a role for the public sector. And that's not something that uh, we could drive on our own. I think it's something that needs to be nationally driven as well. So definitely, Alex, our view is that we don't see renewables being completely done by the private sector. There's obviously a role because of the financing, like I was saying, and getting investment into the country. But I think it's something that where we we strongly feel that ESCOM needs to play a role in as well. Okay, thanks for that. Um, on the, the financing front, um, I think obviously everybody is well aware that ESCOM has got a pretty giant debt uh, load hanging around its neck. I think difficult to know the exact amount, but I think it was $480 billion about last time I checked. And I know that ESCOM has been in discussions around what's been called the just transition transaction or something along those lines to try secure international finance to help with accelerating the, the transition to renewable energy, as well as um, helping to fund a just transition. Um, and I think there's been some concerns raised by some of our partners about, you know, firstly, where is that process and, and, and what's going on with it? 
Um, is it still going ahead? And then also, does that funding from international financiers come with any strings attached to it? Because we've seen, you know, the World Bank often when it does its loans, it doesn't always give just for free. It uh, tries to add some restructuring into its loans. Um, so is that something that might, might be a worry? And then also in terms of funding it, you know, I think there's been a little bit of a, a discussion around ESCOM's um, tariff for solar users um, where, you know, those that are trying to feed solar into the grid will have to pay a monthly cost. And there's some worries that some have raised that that might act as a disincentive for, for solar installations for homes. So just in terms of that funding of the Just Transition, what are, I know part of the Just Transition plans is to try seek financial stability for ESCOM, but what are the funding mechanisms that you're looking at and how are you ensuring that it's progressive rather than regressive or coming with strings attached to it? Okay, so I think firstly, we are going into this discussions around financing with our eyes wide open, you know, and and to be uh, frank with you, I think all of us know that there's no free lunch. Mm. Um, you know, wh- whoever you talk to, whether it's international financiers or it's commercial banks, there are always strings attached. Uh, we all know this, you know, in anything you're trying to finance, even in your own personal life, there's always strings attached. Mm. So I think we mustn't be... Um, you know, we mustn't look at it through rose-colored glasses and think that there is a financier out there that will give us money for nothing. It's not, it doesn't exist. Such a thing doesn't exist. Um, so the way we're approaching financing and the way we're looking at financing is is we're looking at different opportunities. Mm. We're not closing the door on anything in particular. So we're looking at project financing. Um, you know, so a lot of the DFIs, the development finance institutions that we are talking to, are quite keen to talk to us around project financing for the repowering and repurposing that I've mentioned. So the studies I mentioned earlier are being uh, grant funded. So that's completely grant funding. And I must say that funding does not come with, uh, I just said everything has strings, right? But it, it, it there's no obligation on us to uh, whoever's funding that to then use their companies. Mm. There isn't an obligation. So yeah. they, the studies will be done through grant funding. But the concessional loans, uh, when we talk about actual project implementation, then we have to talk about concessional loans. And we're talking highly concessional loans. So, you know, a long tenors, um, uh, favorable interest rates and all of that is what we're discussing with financiers at the moment. But I think it's uh, the difficulty is that we do have a, a high debt, like you say, and doesn't matter how concessional your, your loan is, when you're highly indebted, taking on more debt is not a good idea. Mm. So we have a lot of financiers that are talking to us about concessional financing and a concessional financing with uh, very favorable terms, long tenors, low interest rates, um, but it's still debt. Um, and that is why we're also looking at opportunities for partnerships, for partners that can bring in financing, but to partner with us so that we still maintain the other issues around local manufacture, localization, job creation. But when we get into partnerships, we're talking about the fact that ESCOM can bring the land, we can bring the environmental authorization. Uh, you know, we bring in the, the, the DMRE determinations, for example, and then we're looking for partners to bring in the financing to deal with the issue around with our, with our debt and how do we finance. Then the other uh, question you asked was around the just transition transaction. So we are also looking at that from an ESCOM perspective. So we're busy doing some energy modeling to look at what is a decarbonization pathway uh, that we can commit to um, and also based on our net zero goal. So we're doing some um, some deep energy modeling within ESCOM to look at that pathway between now and 2050 to understand what decarbonization goal can we commit to and then what is that plan going to cost us? So we want to table a plan that is not airy-fairy and, and a plan that is operable, you know, so that you can put a plan on the table to say, we can decarbonize at, at this um, limit over the next 30 years, but this plan can also be operated. The system operator can pick up this plan and say, it is something that has systematicity, it has network operability. Um, and so we're busy with that modeling work and um, our energy modeling part of it is actually finished. We lo- we're now doing the grid modeling to understand what the grid requirements will be. And then the financial modeling to say, what will this plan cost us? And what is the cost of abatement? So what we would like to table is to say, ESCOM can offer a a significant ambitious decarbonization, say one gigaton, right? Mm -hmm. Against our baseline as a country uh, for the electricity sector. 
we could do this. Uh, we could accelerate decarbonization if you are able to finance us at, say, $8 per ton, $7 per ton, whatever that number might be. And to offer that to the climate financing, to the international investment community, say, are you interested in funding such a plan? And so that is what we're looking at as well. That's separate from project financing. So like we, we're not dependent on that to, to project finance commodities repowering, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, that will still continue as part of our just transition plan. But if we want to finance and accelerate a decarbonization for the country, then we will need that huge quantums I, I'm referring to. And the other attractiveness, I think, about the plan is if you talk about abatement in, in Europe, it's going to cost you a lot more than it will cost you to abate in South Africa. And, you know, you can abate carbon anywhere in the world, right? <laughs> and you would contribute to the global effort. So we're saying to the international community, if we are able as a developing country to say we can put this ambitious decarbonization plan on the table, would you be willing to fund it? And so that's the proposition we would we would like to make. And if you get that right, you could actually fund this, this accelerated decarbonization, deal with capacity replacement, deal with the social issues. And, and I don't want to sound like the just energy transition plan is a panacea, but it comes pretty close. I must say, if we get this right. Okay. That's, a, that's an exciting possibility that ESCOM might be uh, accelerating its emissions reductions there. And I suppose there's a big question here about what level of ambition is enough, right? You know, I think on one hand, we do have, you know, a lot of folks, particularly in the DMRE, that are trying to push for a bit of a slower, cautious transition. But, you know, we as the Climate Justice Coalition, we work with a lot of young people and they're calling for quite significant ambition, I think, beyond, certainly beyond what ESCOM is looking at in terms of things like 100% renewable energy by 2030, some of our young people's demands. Some of the other civil society groups are looking at things like, um, you know, transitioning away from coal by 2040. Um, and so I think there's a sense that, you know, ESCOM, because it's the electricity provider, should be the engine of decarbonizing the broader economy. And so because we want the whole economy to be net zero by 2050, that ESCOM should be there well before then, right? And so we're just, I, I think there is a sense where people are saying, okay, ESCOM, this is good. You're moving a bit more ambitiously, but we need you to go further still and faster. So when we're thinking about the, the level of ambition that this sort of just transition transaction might enable, is that going to move that 2050 day quite a bit further forward, maybe to what some of those demands might be asking? Maybe not 2030, but maybe 2040? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's exactly the, the pathways we're looking at mm. is, you know, can we uh, accelerate this faster if we had the money? Mm. So that's exactly the modeling we're doing. And, and uh, the other thing to consider is that we're doing modeling now based on, remember what I said, on technologies we know. Mm. If we get hydrogen in, in 10, 15 years, that's going to change that picture completely. Mm. So we're not saying we're doing the energy modeling now and that's the end of it. Right. We will revise that modeling again as we know better. And, you know, even if we do it, do it annually. But I would like to encourage our younger people to, we, we need more people to study energy planning and energy, energy modeling. Uh, and that is why I was talking about system adequacy. If you talk, if you look at system adequacy, you will see that you, you cannot have 100% renewables by 2030. It's practically not possible to run a system like that. Um, and, you know, I'm saying this as a climate activist myself um, uh, and a supporter of renewable energy, that you have to look at the practicality and the pragmatic plans to put on the table in terms of you can have these, and it's great to have ideals. We must have ideals. And if we don't have uh, people with ideals, we'll get nowhere. Uh, it's great to have the ideals, but let's put some practicality and pragmatism around it. And that is what we're doing with our with our modeling work to say, what is the most we can push ourselves in terms of decarbonization and renewables on the grid um, in the next time tranches, you know, looking 2030, 2040, 2050. And for now, we're saying that we, we're sticking to that net zero goal because that's what we can actually operate. That's the plan that we can operate and put on the table. It's already It's already quite ambitious in terms of renewables, because you have to go back and look at, um, do we have a practical thing? Do we not have enough cranes in the country to put out wind turbines? At this point in time, we don't. So you have to go back and say, what are those levers that ESCOM needs to support us in this? And so industrialization, manufacturing, which is why I was saying earlier that you need industrial policy, you need mm. 
energy policy, mm -hmm. you need all of these things to work together to push this. So yes, we can put a plan on the table to say we can decarbonize by 2040, but can we actually implement that is, is, is the question. And it's something that we need to work collaboratively on. I do think I agree that we are the engine of decarbonization in the country, the, the electricity sector. If we can get the electricity sector decarbonized, if we can get national support behind this decarbonization plan we have, if we can get the money in, we can do it. Hmm. Um, so I think it's about the collaborative uh, impact. And I say this with, with the utmost respect, not criticizing the plan, but saying, okay, so that's the plan you have. We're happy you've put a plan on the table. How do we help you implement that and help implement it faster hmm. um, would be the, the way forward, I would think. Thanks for that, Mandy. That uh, that kind of transitions to a question that I was going to ask, but maybe just a comment too. I, I think, yeah, there's this really interesting question of the technology is shifting really quickly, so it could really move those dates forward. And we've seen yeah. that constantly uh, the likes of the International Energy Agency, which is supposed to be, you know, the foremost body for predicting energy, has underestimated the scale at which renewable energy has grown, at which the costs have come down. And at the same time, we have this rapidly growing political movement around climate change, which is building and getting stronger. And so I think we can see these two changes that are happening, two different forms of revolution, one technological, one political, that can really accelerate this transition moving forward. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that ESCOM is certainly open to the idea of accelerating that transition of iterative modeling where you're revisiting that. I think that's really important because one of the big issues we have with the Department of Mineral Resource of Energy, it has this flawed model from 2019 where they rigged it and they're trying to just stick to that model because it gets new coal for them. That's kind of the way we see that. So I think the idea that ESCOM is going to be revisiting this is trying to see how much ambition that they can push forward. Um, is good. And, I've, you know, I think, and so the idea that, uh, you know, we can work together collaboratively to make that future happen, I think is a really important one, even though, you know, we do have disagreements and maybe we'd want you to go a bit more ambitiously, but, you know, hopefully yeah. that's something that we can do by putting pressure in the right places. As you say, it's about broad changes. It's not just about ESCOM. Um, it is about industrial policy. So I think you've already touched on it a little bit, but in terms of how people can help make this a reality. What would be your sort of take-home messages there to help make a just energy transition possible? So I think for me, it's um, coming back a little bit to what I was saying earlier around more collaboration and communication, right? So having these sort of conversations are important because if you say to me, we've looked at your plan, it's great. I'm so happy ESCOM has a plan, but we think you can do better. And, and I'm saying to you, you know, from where I am right now, we've put our most ambitious mm. plan on the table that we can currently implement. Yeah. And so if you and I don't have that conversation, you're never going to understand that. It's always going to be, mm. you know, ESCOM, you can do better. Right. So I think more communication, more collaboration, less criticism, less crucifixion maybe. But we do need the, the pressure. I think mm. it's good to have people that criticize in a constructive way. Yeah. But I, I really do think, you know, this just transition is so big. It's a wicked problem, right? Mm. It's, it's a real, you know, if you want to do a thesis on a wicked problem, here's one. Yeah. And therefore, you absolutely need people to pull together, to work together, and, and not to go for perfect. We're never going to have a perfect energy policy. We're never going to have perfect industrial policy. But let's look at those obstacles that are stopping us from implementing in the next year, in the next two years, the next three years. Not think about... What is this going to happen in 10 years? You know, mm. I know it's important to think about the future, but can we get some projects on the ground now and get some implementation on the ground? We are very keen to do that because we have power stations that are closing down. We have staff dependent on those stations. We have communities dependent on those power stations. Mm. Um, I think, you know, take a drive to Malafeni, take a drive to Kamati power station, you will see in reality what is happening. So for me, it's about... Let's look at what is on the table in terms of plans. Let's look at how we can, what the barriers are to implementing those plans. And it's, and look at it this way. It's not barriers to ESCOM implementing, it's, it's national barriers to us implementing a plan as a country. And then how do we work together to, to implement that? Uh, so I think more implementation, less talking is what I would like to see uh, going. I know I just said we should communicate more, but communicating more in terms of, collaboratively how can we move this forward right. and, and and get implementation on the ground 
we're very, very desperate to get proof of concept on the ground. Mm-hmm. People are saying to us, you're talking about repowering for two years now. Mm-hmm. Can we see a project? Right. And I'm saying, yes, but can we get the money? Can we get the regulatory reforms? Can we get the, uh, you know, the, the momentum behind that to get it going? Yeah. Um, so I think that's for me is, is, is an area where we are desperate to get some action going. Thank you, Mandy. And, and I appreciate that. I think, you know, we as the Climate Justice Coalition are aspiring towards constructive criticism when it comes to ESCOM. Um, and so that we can say where we disagree, but also hopefully, as we've shown on this podcast, also say where we agree and, and where we see some positive progress forward and where we can collaborate too. Um, and I think one of the, the central elements of the, the Green New ESCOM campaign is about trying to bring down some of those barriers, those broader barriers to change. Um, so, you know, we as the Green New ESCOM campaign, as the Climate Justice Coalition, just put out a booklet on the Green New ESCOM, which details a little bit about our vision. Um, but it also details ways that people can contact the government and contact relevant officials to start pushing for change. It also asks people to sign up to join mobilizations to put pressure on the DMRE. Um, and, and it really is trying to build that political momentum so that we can start to shift those broader political obstacles to unlocking a just energy transition. So hopefully through some of that, you know, we'll be we'll be making and, and pushing the sorts of changes that will allow for a just energy transition around ESCOM, because I think civil society does have a vital role to, to unlock those obstacles and to push down those political barriers um, and also to to help make this vision possible. Um, so I think from our side, if people want to get involved, they can go to greennewescom.org and take some steps um, there and take action and help make this happen. But yeah, thank you so much, Mandy, for taking the time to, to share with us what ESCOM is doing and to have a, an open uh, discussion both about where we see some positive steps and where we disagree too, which is okay. You know, it's not, uh, we don't have to have a hundred percent alignment, but I think we are pushing in broadly similar directions. Um, and so hopefully yeah. we can, we can help make that uh, happen together and transform ESCOM from the biggest climate polluter on the continent to hopefully a force for climate justice before too long. Absolutely. And, and, uh, yes, you're going to see that, Alex, uh, you're going to see us do that. Uh, if I can just add one last thing, sure. um, as you rightly pointed out, civil society plays a crucial role because we don't know what we don't know. You know, we might be experts in terms of this is the technological solution. This is how we see it going forward. But in terms of some of the other issues around our plans um, and things that we haven't thought about, I think you play a crucial role in in, um, helping us shape that. And so I'm, I'm serious when I say let's talk more, let's communicate more and collaborate more on how we get these things done. But I think it's a two-way street, you know, for us understanding each other's. And and I completely agree. Life would be boring if we all agreed. So Mm. we will disagree. But I think if we reach a point where we say we disagree, but this is what we need to do to implement, then I think we we have a win. Sounds good. And uh, I think, as you said, a broad national vision around a just transition is really important. And hopefully that's something we can can rally behind um, and ESCOM is certainly at the core of making that happen. So this has been a really important and and helpful conversation, Mandy. Uh, So thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to all our listeners too. Yes, and I appreciate the opportunity and thank you to everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.